Please be seated. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. Uh, this Friday is Good Friday. We have a service here at 6 p.m. That's right, John, 6 p.m. Okay, just double check that. 6 p.m. I should know I'll be here. And then next Sunday is Easter. So two services, 8.30 and 10.30. And you can grab a, an invitation card in the info center on the way out. So please consider inviting someone who doesn't know Jesus to the Good Friday service and the Easter service next week. Good Friday is at what time? 6, Easter, 8.30 and 10.30. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for a moment to pause and learn from your word. Lord, we do pray that you would send your spirit now, fill each one of us. Lord, give us understanding. Father, we pray this would not be business as usual, but we pray that you would reveal yourself to us by your spirit's power for your glory. Lord, help us to have an encounter with the risen Christ that is transformational. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before the scriptures this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Houston, we have a problem. Astronaut John L. Swaggart uttered these famous words just a few seconds um, after an explosion shook his Apollo 13 spacecraft in 1970. He was over 200,000 miles away from planet Earth with two other astronauts. Well, what happened? A spark from an exposed wire in the oxygen tank caused a fire ripping apart one oxygen tank and damaging another inside the spacecraft. This small spark left three astronauts without several important things. They were freezing cold, there was a shortage of food, a shortage of water, and the air was poisonous. To make things worse, they couldn't stop by the, the local parts store because they were 200,000 miles away from planet Earth. Ground control in Houston, Texas, scrambled frantically to develop a, pro a, a procedure to rescue these three astronauts. And the whole world was glued to their TVs for several hours as these events unfolded. And they all wondered, are these astronauts going to die of starvation, of poisonous gas, of freezing temperatures? Or are they going to be rescued by ground control in Houston. Well, as many of you know, ground control developed an incredibly intricate plan, and they were able to communicate this plan to the astronauts, and amazingly, it worked. And these three astronauts were rescued from sure death, even though they were 200,000 miles away from planet Earth in this little spacecraft. Now, we all love rescue stories, I think deep down inside, all of us have been in situations where we realize we too need to be rescued. And that brings us to John 6. John 6 is a rescue story, one of the best in the Gospels, where Jesus walks across the water and rescues his disciples from an intense storm. All of us experience storms. Maybe you're currently in a financial storm or a relational storm or a health storm. All of us find ourselves in situations where we need to be rescued from these intense storms. And the question is, who will rescue us? Is there any hope for us of rescue? John 6 makes one simple point. Jesus 
is willing and able to rescue us from the storms of life. Now, this story unfolds with three scenes. There's the storm, scene two, the rescue, and scene three is the response. So scene one first is the storm. Look with me at John 6, 16 to 17. John writes, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So just before the story, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 adults, males, plus women and children. And as a result, the Jews want to make him king. He realizes it's not yet time for him to be king, and so he discreetly removes himself from the situation uh, and goes up on a mountain. But before he does that, he tells his disciples to get in a boat and go across the Sea of Galilee, and he'll meet him on the other side. Look at verse 18 with me. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So as darkness descends on this region, and Jesus is up on the mountain, the disciples are heading across the sea, and a, a violent storm comes out of nowhere and strikes this little vessel. Now, the Sea of Galilee was subject to violent storms. It was 600 feet below sea level and surrounded by mountains, and whenever strong winds would come uh, from the Mediterranean, they would go through this massive, natural, mountainous tunnel, creating these incredible storms on the Sea of Galilee. These storms would come out of nowhere and even make the most seasoned sailors terrified. Now, we know that these sailors are in bad shape because, based on the parallel accounts and, and Matthew and Mark, they have been rowing for seven to eight hours, and they've only gone a couple of miles. Now, sailors could usually uh, row a couple of miles in maybe one or two hours. So these guys are working really hard. They're rowing against the wind, against the storm, and they're getting nowhere. And according to the parallel account in Mark, Jesus sees them struggling. This was a not the run-of-a-mill storm. This was a severe storm. If this storm were an ice storm, it would be Ice Storm 96. If this storm were an athlete, it would be Marshawn Lynch. If this storm were a movie, it would be one of the Rocky movies. How many of you have been caught in a severe storm and been terrified? A couple of us have. I visited my future in-laws for the first time in the fall of 1997. It was October. It was late in the fall. And my in-laws decided to take me sailing. Now, a little background is important here. My father-in-law had just purchased his first sailboat. And this sailboat had a hollow keel, not a lead keel. Now, that makes sailboats easier to transport across land, but there's a trade-off. Lead keel boats are not nearly as stable, I'm sorry, hollow keel boats are not nearly as stable as lead keel boats. So keep that in mind. My father-in-law was also very much a rookie sailor. So we get out in the Puget Sound near Tacoma, and the first hour or so, things are going great. There's a little bit of wind. We're going somewhat fast. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the wind picks up, and we begin to race across the water. And for a moment there, I felt like Dennis Connor. You guys know who Dennis Connor is? Okay, and this, this probably dates me. He was a really famous sailor back in the 80s and 90s. He was the, the captain of America's sailing team, it was called. Anyone know? I don't know either. Anyways, <laughs> famous sailor. I felt like him for a moment as we're cruising across the water, but then 
Out of nowhere, the waves go into an even higher gear, and the winds pick up even more. And there's rain whipping against our face, and the boat's going faster and faster and faster, and the sail is going further and further and further over. And I look at my father-in-law, and he looks terrified, (laughs) which did not give me a lot of comfort. He realized he was in way over his head, and the more terrified that he got, the more terrified we all got in the boat. And then a massive gust of wind hit our sail, and the boat nearly tipped over. We were, the, the, the mast was very, very close to the water. My face turned green. I thought I was going to throw up. And more importantly, at that point of the year, the water is freezing cold, and we were at least three or four miles from land. So I thought, if we go over in the storm, it's going to be really cold, and we're not going to survive for very long. So I was legitimately terrified, and you would have been terrified too. It was a very, very scary experience. Storms can be terrifying. Now, as scary as this storm was for myself and my wife and my in-laws, the storms of life can be far more terrifying. There's the storm of cancer, the storm of chronic pain, arthritis for years and years and years, the storm of unemployment. There's the storm of inflation and recession There's the storm of difficult marriage, years and years and years of fighting. There's the storm of divorce. There's the storm of child abuse. There's the storm of an impossible boss who is never, ever, ever satisfied with your work. And just like the Sea of Galilee, our circumstances can change very, very quickly. All it takes is a diagnosis from a doctor, a car accident, or recession, and our lives can change like that. And the question is, is anyone able to rescue us from these storms? And that brings us to the second scene. So scene one is the storm, and scene two is the rescue. What enables Jesus to rescue these disciples from this storm? That's the question. We all know that he rescued them, but what enables him to rescue them from this storm? Well, Jesus Christ can rescue them because he's God. Look with me at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. After hours and hours of fighting against the storm, rowing for at least seven to eight hours, soaking wet, the wind is blowing, they're terrified. All of a sudden, they see Jesus walking towards them on the water. Now, keep in mind that they're at least three to four miles from shore. And I wonder what they said or thought when one of them first saw Jesus and said, guys, look. There's someone walking towards us on the water. You would have been terrified too. Many people assume that the disciples were afraid of the storm. And they probably were to some extent. But the story tells us very specifically that they are far more terrified of Jesus walking on the water. The word for 
Frightened is often translated with the word terrified. Why are they so terrified of Jesus walking on the water towards them? Because in that moment, they realized if this guy can walk on the water, then he controls nature. If he controls nature, then he must be God. And if he's God, he's created all things out of nothing. And that being is now walking towards us on the water, which also means that he controls all the properties of nature. In the Old Testament, God alone rules over the seas, Psalm 29, 10 to 11. And by walking on water, Jesus proves that he is God. Not only does he act like God, but he also claims to be God in this story. Let's keep reading. Back to verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now it's easy to miss the claim that Jesus is making in this story, unless you interpret verse 20 literally. He literally says, don't be afraid, I am which is a strange thing to say, isn't it? Don't be afraid, I am. Now, the disciples knew the Old Testament well. And this is clearly a reference to Exodus 3.14. Do you remember that story? In the book of Exodus, God appears to Moses and says, Moses, I have chosen you out of all people to deliver my people, Israel, from the bondage of the Egyptians. Moses is terrified when he encounters God's presence. He's quaking and he says, well, God, who shall I say sent me to the Israelites? In other words, God, what is your name? What should I call you when people ask me, who has sent you to deliver us? And God says to him, tell them that I am, that I am has sent you. I'm sure Moses thought, what? What in the world does that mean? That's the name of God. And it's translated into English with four letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. I am that I am. This name is spelled with the letters, again, Y-H-W-H. In the Greek version, it's translated as ego eimi, I am. God's name is I am, which raises the question, what in the world does that mean? What does I am mean? It probably means something like this. I am self-existent and independent, which means that I need nothing and I'm dependent on no one. Or it probably means I am the sustainer of everything. Or I am unchangeable in my ways, meaning you can always rely on me to help you. Or it means I am eternal in my existence. Jesus is claiming in this very moment to be I am to be the same as Yahweh. This is quite a claim for Christ to make in this moment. So why can Jesus rescue the disciples? Because he's God. He is Yahweh, the self-existent one, the all-powerful one, the holy one. Therefore, he has what it takes to deliver these disciples from this measly storm. 
And again, when the disciples realize who they're dealing with, they are terrified, much more afraid of him than the storm. Many people think of Jesus as nothing more than a great moral teacher or a miracle worker or a wise sage or a super nice guy. He probably drives a Prius and recycles and volunteers at the pet shelter. Or he's like a Santa Claus without the white beard and the red clothes. He loves and accepts everyone. But this was not the Jesus encountered by the disciples. When they saw Jesus walking on the water, they were terrified because God is holy. He's not like us. He's powerful. He's self-existent. And knowledge of God moving towards them across the water terrified them. And by the way, in the Bible, whenever someone encounters God's presence, they are instantly struck with terror. Think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6. God appears to him and Isaiah says, Woe is me! In other words, I'm in deep, deep trouble. Later on in the Gospels, when Christ performs a miracle in front of Peter, Peter says, Lord, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. Both Isaiah and Peter first notice, or they're first made aware of the fact that they are sinners when God manifests his presence. One scholar says this, have you ever felt such an awe for Jesus that you've needed to hear his reassurance that you don't need to be afraid of him? If not, might it be that your view of Jesus is simply too small? If you've never, ever, ever been terrified of Jesus, have you encountered the Jesus of Scripture? And the answer is no. Because when God, through Christ, manifests his divine nature in the Bible, everyone is terrified. Now, at the same time, God in Christ is also a God of extravagant love, grace, and mercy. So he's both. He's the lion and the lamb. But if you've never, ever been terrified by Jesus, are you worshiping the Jesus of Scripture? And again, the answer is probably not. Because he is holy, he is divine, he is self-existent, he is powerful. Because Jesus is God, he is able to rescue from any storm. Well, if that's true, Dave, why am I still experiencing a storm? Why is my life still so hard? If he's truly God, then why hasn't he rescued me yet? Sometimes, Christ allows us to wrestle with storms for a while so that you and I are made aware of our great dependence on him. Christ is able to rescue us from any storm because he's Lord of every storm, but sometimes he wants to teach us humility and dependence on him. If we're in a storm, it's because he wants to somehow use that storm to make us more and more like himself. Storms are designed to humble us and teach us how to pray and teach us how to be dependent on our Savior. 
How should we respond in the midst of storms? With trust, patience, and confidence. Trust. We trust God because he's God. He has the power to deliver us. Patience. God will deliver us in his timing when it's best for us and glorifies him the most. Trust, patience, and confidence. Confidence. We know that God is always doing what is good and right and best for us. We can be confident of that. Jesus Christ can rescue us because he's God. In addition, Jesus Christ can rescue us because he draws near. He's God, and he draws near to us. Look at verse 19 again. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. After rowing for hours and hours and hours, they were probably wet, cold, angry, cranky, probably wondering, where is God Why hasn't he helped us? Why are we still struggling against the wind and the waves? Maybe you've wondered the same thing in the midst of your storms. God did not forget about them. In fact, in the parallel passage in Mark 6, Jesus is up on the hillside watching them. He sees what's happening. He hasn't forgotten. He eventually gets up, walks down the mountain, and then he walks across the water. Why? To be near them. Jesus could have easily stilled the storm from the shore, but instead, he walks across the water to communicate, I want to be near you, I want to be with you, I want to rescue you in the midst of the storm. He draws near to provide comfort and to make us aware of his loving, benevolent presence. Anne Steele lived in England from 1716 to 1778. Her mother died when she was three years old. When she was 19, she suffered a severe injury to her hip, rendering her an invalid for most of her adult life. When she was 21, she was engaged to be married, and the day before her wedding, her fiancé was drowned in a river taking a bath. She never married, and she assisted her father in his pastoral labors for her whole life. Over the last nine years of her life, she was never able to leave her bed. Okay, recap of her life. No mother, crippled her whole life, single her whole life, fiance drowned day before her wedding, and the last nine years of her life, she was in bed. There were lots of storms in Anne Steele's life. She wrote a beautiful hymn titled, My God, My Father, Blissful Name, Listen to what she says in the sixth verse of this hymn. If cares and sorrows me surround, their power, why should I fear? My inward peace they cannot wound if thou, my God, are near. My inward peace they cannot wound if thou, my God, are near. She was not afraid of the storms of life because she knew in the midst of those storms, God was near her. God was with her. God would never, ever abandon her or forsake her or leave her. In a similar sense, Jesus walks off the mountain, walks across the water to be with these disciples in the midst of their storm. He does not calm the storm from the side of the lake. 
He joins them in the storm. Consider God's words for the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 43, verses 2 and following. God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God promises to be with us in the midst of our trials. In the midst of our storms, he is with us. He lives inside of us, and he manifests his presence to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He does not watch from a distance. He comes and meets us and comforts us and encourages us and assures us that we are his beloved children. Jesus drew near the disciples to rescue them from the storm. But how did they respond? And how should you and I respond? This takes us to the last scene of the story. So first scene, the storm. Second scene, the rescue. Third scene, the response. How did the disciples respond to Jesus? Well, they gladly welcomed Christ into their boat. Look at verse 21 with me. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at land, at the land to which they were going. Now, this story is not a parable, it's a historical narrative. However, it certainly illustrates what happens when Jesus Christ comes into our lives. It is a dark and stormy world, as I've already mentioned. There are many, many storms that can make our lives miserable, whether we're Christians or not. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready for the storms? Can you survive the storms on your own? The answer is a resounding no. You need someone in that boat with you. If you're not yet a Christian, you know, like I know, that life is full of storms. And how are you going to survive those storms on your own? You're not. But Jesus, the maker of all things, promises to come and be with us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to comfort us in the midst of our storms. If Christ is with you, you can weather any storm. If he's not with you, your life will be challenging. Well, how do we metaphorically let Christ into the boat with us if we're not Christians? We make a decision to follow Jesus. We turn away from our sins. We put all our hope and confidence in him, admitting that we are sinners who need his grace, his power, and his forgiveness. And then he promises to come and be with us and provide refuge for the storm. And if you are a Christian, don't forget that Christ is with you in the boat. An old hymn goes like this. His love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. By prayer let me wrestle and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. If Christ is with you in the boat, he will strengthen you, comfort you, and help you endure 
the worst storms that life can bring. How do the disciples respond? They gladly welcome Christ in their boat. How does Jesus respond to the disciples? He brings them safely home. Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. As soon as Christ enters the boat, John says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Was this quick trip to shore another miracle? Possibly. It seems like as soon as Christ gets in the boat, everything changes and they're immediately safely on shore. That's very possible. Many scholars think that's what's happening here. But more importantly, this story is a fulfillment of Psalm 107, 29 to 30. A thousand years before Christ, the psalmist says this, speaking of God. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Christ saw the disciples in distress and acted. He came down the mountain, walked on the water, entered the boat, and brought the disciples safely home to their desired haven, the shore. Now, ultimately, how do you and I know that Christ is able to rescue us from life's most intense Storms. What assurance do we have that Christ will rescue us if he wants to? Because again, sometimes he lets us remain in a storm to build character in us. But how do we know that he's able to actually rescue us from the storms of life? What is the assurance? What is the guarantee? It's simply this. Roughly three years after this story, Jesus went to the cross And on the cross, Jesus rescued us from the greatest storm we could ever possibly imagine. The storm of God the Father's righteous and holy wrath. On the cross, Jesus absorbed all the thunder, all the lightning, all the wind, and all the waves of God's righteous fury. You and I are sinners, and God is holy. And because we are sinners, we deserve to hang on a cross and experience the wrath of God. But God, motivated by love, sent his only son, Jesus, to come and suffer and die in our place and absorb the storm of the Father's righteous wrath. If God has done that for us, surely he is able to rescue us from every storm. And because he's done that for us, all of the guilt of all of our sins can be removed, which means that you and I are made worthy vessels to someday reach our desired haven, that is heaven. Christ came, faced the ultimate storm, removed all of our guilt, and he's now in our boat with us, and he will get us to the desired haven that is heaven. Again, listen to Psalm 107, 29 to 30. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, 
and he brought them to their desired haven. If you're a Christian this morning, you have incredible hope. Jesus has rescued us from the greatest storm. And because he's done that, we know he can rescue us from any storm that comes our way. And he promises to bring us home to heaven, the land of eternal rest. This is what Christ does for us if we're Christians. Let's pray together.